So, uh, so this morning we're uh, ending our great summer read series, and we are going to be talking about uh, Rahab, who is uh, a story found in Joshua chapter two and uh, finishes up in Joshua chapter three, and it is a spy story. Uh, in a lot of ways, and I love a good spy story. I read spy novels. I read. I see movies uh, that have to do with uh, spies and espionage. Love that stuff. Matter of fact, I just saw this week uh, Operation Finale, which is a real life spy story from the 1960s. I enjoyed it. Thought it was a, a great film. And so this morning, as we uh, look at this story from the Old Testament. Uh, we're not going to read all of it because it's uh, it's a big story, and I'm going to read portions of it, tell other portions of it, but then I encourage you to uh, to read this on your own, uh, especially if you like to read uh, drama and intrigue, because it's a uh, it's a good story. Uh, I'm not sure if the Israelite spies uh, sang that song or if uh, Rahab had a red light. Uh, but we do know that Rahab was a prostitute, that she owned a brothel. And we also will find out that Rahab was a fine woman. She was a woman of conviction, a woman of faith, and a woman who loved her family. Some quick background to the story. The Israelites have just crossed over uh, the Jordan River, and they are about to take possession of the promised land. And Joshua, their new leader, uh, he's uh, leading the Israelite nation, and he makes a tactical decision to send spies out to uh, to search out and check out the area of Jericho, to investigate Jericho. And their assignment was something sim uh, very simple. It was to report on the defenses of Jericho, to go into the city, to see what might be going on, to find out if they were prepared for an attack, and to also check on the food and water supplies, which is why they would have gone all the way into the city. Uh, because to take siege of a city, you would be you would be required that you cut off the water supply. And so Joshua is is kind of putting everything in place before they uh, go and siege the city, which would be later on in the story. You can read that another great story, uh, but we won't touch on that at all this morning. So in Joshua chapter 2, the story begins, it's up on the screen. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there that night. Now, in ancient times, there were big houses that would be near the center of the, uh, uh, or near the gates of the city as they would, and people would enter. And so those, uh, places were often inns that were built right into the walls of these cities. And often these bed and breakfast type establishments had a little extra emphasis on the bed than, uh, than they did about the breakfast, at least for the right price. And so that's how Rahab got her title. Some commentators want to tell, tell us that Rahab was a hostess, that she was an innkeeper, but the, the, the Hebrew's pretty clear there, and later on in the New Testament we'll see as well that she is a prostitute, that she wasn't famous for her pancakes. Uh, she was famous for some other things, all right? And so it's likely that these two spies are eager to avoid suspicion because they know that they are strangers in a strange town. And so they want to mix in with the crowd. They want to find out as much information as they can about the city. And uh, so they go to this place that is situated near the, uh, near the walls uh, in this town, and uh, it would be a brothel. And this would be a place that would be frequented by many people. 
And it was also a good place to gather information about the town without being noticed because strangers would often visit here after long travel. And among these strangers, they felt they could remain safe and uh, be uh, unseen. But it turns out that either because of their dress or because of their accents or, or because they spoke a different language, uh, people in the brothel recognize them as Israelites and they go to the king. The king was a local king. It wasn't king of a nation. It was the king of Jer Jericho. So he was kind of like the mayor or governor of Jericho. And, uh, and they tell this king that there are Israelite spies and they're staying at, the, at Rahab's house. So the king then sends a message to Rahab to send the spies to her. It sends some soldiers over. They want these spies. They want to bring them to the king. It's up on the screen. Rahab gets word of this, and it says, Rahab had hidden the two men. And when they asked for the men to be, if she's seen the men, if she has the men with her, she says, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. And then the storyteller tells us, parenthetically, actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. They assumed that's where they probably crossed. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. So when Rahab realizes that the king of Jericho means to harm these two spies, uh, she comes up with a perfect hiding place for them. Flax was a plant that was grown and it had two purposes. Uh, they would, they would take the flax and it would be rent, the flax plants, it'd be rendered down and the coarse fibers would be used to make rope. And so later in the story, we'll see that, that Rahab throws a rope out the window, likely made, that she had made that from the flax that she's, uh, got up on the roof now. The other thing that the flax would be used for is it'd be used to make some fine linens. So, they would have to render this down from the flax plant. And the way you would do that is that the flax, when it's harvested, would then be put and soaked in stagnant, really gross water, like the decaying water. And the decayed water, after it has, uh, after the flax has been taken out of the decayed water, the flax is then put onto the roof to dry. And as it dries, the fibers break down so that the coarse fibers can be separated from the fine fibers. So it's likely that Rahab has a little side business where she is uh, uh, creating some fine linens and she's also creating ropes with this flax. So there's good news and bad news for these two spies. The bad news is that this process is smelly, disgusting, putrid. And so imagine when Rahab says, hey, we have to hide you. I've got a great idea. I have some flax up on the roof. <laughs> but they're desperate, so they hide under the flax on the roof. That's the bad news. The good news is it was so putrid and so disgusting, it's a perfect hiding place because there's no way those soldiers would search through that. So she comes up with this great plan, hide in the flax. We also find out that Rahab is a really good liar. I mean, she just comes up with this story, and it's believable enough that the soldiers don't search very hard through her home if they search at all. 
Little side note, nowhere in the Bible does it say, nowhere in the story does it say that God approved of her lying. So don't go, well, Rahab did it, I can too. What I love about the Bible, though, is is this unfiltered account of the events and activities of human beings, flawed men and women who choose to follow God. So the story continues. It's up on the screen. Before the spies went to sleep that night. So this is after they've come out of the flax, after the soldiers have left. Uh, Hopefully they've washed themselves, gotten cleaned up a little bit. It says, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. She says, I know the Lord is giving you this land. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard, that's important. We're going to come back to that. Rahab has heard something. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did in Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. And so Rahab is operating an inn by the city gate, and she's entertaining travelers who come and go or from around the world. This must have been like living near a news headquarters. I mean, Rahab knew what was going on. She, she was often the first to get gossip, and she was the first to get any privileged information. She heard the stories of the way the Israelites had escaped Egypt. She heard about how a whole generation had survived in the wilderness and how they were now marching toward Jericho and the adjoining cities. And she has been listening and she has been looking for truth and looking for the meaning of life. She likely knew about the many different religions of the world at that time. And there had been rumors, rumors that Israel's God was with them and that the Israelites were invincible. And so, of course, the people of Jericho, many would have laughed and scoffed at these, at these rumors because they've got their own local gods that they worship. But somehow Rahab felt something deeper, something within her that these rumors might be true. And so she is going to make a choice to be aligned, and she's made the choice to be aligned with the spies and with Israel. Rahab believes in her heart that these men represent God and God's cause. And all her life, Rahab's been hearing reports about how this nation of slaves has been saved from Egypt and about the many miracles that they've experienced. And as Rahab has heard these stories, she begins to believe that Yahweh was no ordinary God. And that any God who could do such powerful things, any God who loves his people that much was the God that Rahab Rahab wanted to serve. And so Rahab, in this story, begins to teach us this theological concept that John Wesley talked about called prevenient grace. It's this idea that God, in God's way, is softening and preparing people for an opportunity to choose God. That God is always working in our lives. That God, unknowns to us, almost always, that God's Spirit is seeking to open our eyes, that God is seeking to soften our hearts, and that God is preparing us. That God is searching for us, even when we are unaware and unknown 
or don't know that we should be searching for God. That God is there without our knowledge and understanding. That long before we are aware of it, and in a thousand different ways, God's Spirit is moving in our lives. And that's who God is. A God who sees us, even when we're unaware that we're being sought. And so Rahab is drawn towards Yahweh. Now, one of the problems with stories like this, all these stories we talked about this summer, is we can go in, in, in literally dozens and dozens of different directions. What's God teaching us? What's the, what's the example for us from this? What, what's, what's the story say to us? And so to narrow that down has always been challenging throughout this series. And so this morning, I want to focus on one idea. It's that Rahab heard something. And I want to focus on the why. Why was Rahab drawn to God? I think the story's pretty clear. She became attracted to God's reputation. That she was drawn to God because of the reputation that she had heard. Because of what she had heard about God, the stories and because of a conversation on a roof with two spies. And so my thought for us this morning is that there are rabbis all around us. Rabbis. Rahabs. (laughs) Boy, that's two sides of the spectrum. (laughs) There are. Now everyone's awake. You got that, right? Yeah, Pastor Rick said rabbi. He meant to say Rahab. There are Rahabs all around us, not prostitutes, but there are Rahabs all around us, people who are looking for answers, people who are looking for something else, but are unaware of what that something else may be. In their most honest moments, they would admit that there's a hollowness in life that they're currently living in. And that they just believe there must be something more. That there must be something I can wrap my life around. We sang this, I wrote it down at the first service. When the night is holding on to me, God is holding me. There are people who are desperate to know that there is something holding on to them. See, because in the search for something more, our world, all of us are leaning on lesser things. I spoke with someone in between services and I said, I believe this because it's the way we're wired. We're just wired to believe in something. We want something to hold on to. We want to know that there's something holding on to us. And so when we can't find that true thing, we settle for other things. And so we settle for things like power and money and success and bigger homes. our career, even other people. And we find when we lean on those things, they start to crumble. And so when marriages fall apart, when stressors come into place, when kids struggle, when jobs are lost, when our health is at risk, those things that we cling to are just not enough. They're just not strong enough or faith-filled enough. And so I believe like Rahab, there are people 
people in our workplaces, people in our homes, people in our neighborhoods who are looking for that something else. They're looking for something more than the gods of Jericho. And when they hear about God, when they hear the rumors of the God that we believe in, the God that we serve, and when they hear the rumors about Jesus, what are they hearing? Sadly, in our world, they're hearing some things that just aren't true. The reputation, let me just, reputation for God is kind of bad right now. Some people see him as a grandfather, right? He's loving but feeble. He's absent-minded at best. Some see God as a policeman or a police officer, excuse me, there when you need God, but also there to catch you when you're doing something wrong. Or God's just this happy little cheerleader, kind of just there to, your number one fan, but really isn't of any use when things are going bad. Others see God as this judge who is keeping a record of all the things we've done wrong in life and making a case against us and is just plain angry with the way we've lived life. And how does God get a reputation like this? Where do these rumors of God come from? Sadly, they come from the stories of those who have claimed to follow Jesus, those who claim to follow after God. Because people are listening to our stories and people are watching our stories. And so one of the things I thought of as I was prepping this message, it seems that God needs a better ad campaign. Forgive me for being facetious here. I hope you're okay with this. But, you know, is that God needs some branding and some marketing, right? To kind of change uh, the perspective that people might have for God. And so I thought about that and I thought, you know, there's, 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 there's a good and then there's a better and there's a best, okay? So we're going to start with the good. We'll get to the better. I'm going to save the best for last, okay? But the good is this, is that, is that there are ways to brand and market, right? And the church does that. We do that. We have a church logo and we, we, we do those kinds of things on Facebook and all that kind of stuff stuff and we have posters and, 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 and we send out mailers and we do all those things that are done for marketing and branding purposes. And it's good. All right. Those are good things. You're supposed to do that. The challenge is there are churches all around the world who are known for things and they're known for good things and bad things. And there are churches that picket and churches that oppose and churches that stand for something that other churches are standing against and they're creating a brand as well. And sadly, when I watch the news or when I read the news and I know it's a story, whether it's local or national, about the church, I just so have my, oh, God, please, no. Because usually it's not good. Right now, the church and, and God in many ways is struggling to have a good brand. There are too many stories of what the church is against. And at the same time, too many stories of the dark underbelly of the church and those leading the church. The good news is that branding and marketing is a good approach. It's not the best. It's not even the better. The better, the better is what we call in our strategies, invitation or invite and service. Now we have four strategies, right? We invite, we connect, we grow, and we serve. And invite and serve are the two that are out, outward, outwardly focused. We're grow and connect or inwardly focused. Uh, invite and serve our outwardly focused. So this is a better approach. 
marketing's good, this is a better approach, right? So that's why things like, that's why we, it's so important to do things like National Night Out and the Chick-fil-A family events. You know what, the Chick-fil-A family over the summer, we, we've been doing that six, six different times. All right, we did a little kids event uh, at a Chick-fil-A that let us be in there. We met 150 families. Not, not 150 people, 150 families that said, yeah, we'd like to do a craft with you tonight. Of those 150 families, 30 of those families, not 30 people, 30 families said, you know what, we enjoyed this so much, we want to give you our contact information so that we can find out other things that you're doing. And already, without an invitation yet to come, we haven't sent it yet, without an invitation yet to come to hope, one family started coming around. I think that's a big deal. All right? Well, it's about time for crying out loud. Somebody clap. And I know you can go, it's just one family, but and you were one family one time too. And you came in those doors and you got connected. So that's why things like Christmas tree lightings and the Taste of Mount Laurel and Mount Laurel Fall Festivals and Vacation Bible Schools and Summers of Service and Summer Concerts in the Park and all those things because they create this message and they create this positive reputation of God here in our area. So it's better. It's still not the best. Here's the best. You ready? It's this. This is the best why, best way to combat all the bad press, to combat against all the bad marketing, to combat against all those things, those negative things. It's this. It's the lives we live every day. This is the best marketing strategy available to God. It's the number one way. It's the most effective way. And God's reputation infiltrates the community. Jesus said we should be salt and light. Steve mentioned it earlier. Salt is, in, is meant to enhance the experience of life, and light is meant to be a guide and a beacon to others. And so as I was preparing this and as I was looking for what's the takeaway, I think the takeaway is actually quite simple. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. It's simple to ask. It's challenging to consider. If people only saw how I lived life. See, right now we collectively get to create this reputation for God. But if people only saw how I lived life, me, just me, what would God's reputation look like? If people were only hearing about my life, if they were only seeing my story, what would God's reputation look like? look like? What rumors of God would people hear after they watched me live? And so how we live at work and how we live at school and how we live in our neighborhoods, it matters. How we walk through struggles in our marriage, how we handle trauma with our children, how we respond to the loss of an income, what we do when our health is at risk, these things matter because there are people who are watching the way we live. And collectively, as a community of faith, we are creating a reputation for God. We're communicating a faith and we're communicating our understanding of God. And we're positively adding to the reputation of God. Or when we're not, we're negatively adding to it. 
And so the question I have to ask myself and I challenge you to ask yourself, if people only saw how you lived life, they only saw you, what would God's reputation look like? So Rahab heard the stories of God. Rahab met the spies and Rahab's mind was made up. And so now we jump thousands of years later. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing a letter. He's writing a letter to, uh, to, to folks who are new, new in their faith. And he wants to make the case, the letter is to make the case, that having faith is very important. But in addition to having faith, we also have to act on our faith. That it's important to believe, but it's important for our lives to, to, uh, to demonstrate that belief. So he talks about having faith and having good works. And he says that those two can't be separated, that you can't say I'm a follower of Jesus and not live like a follower of Jesus. He says that you have to have both these things. You have to have faith and you have to have action. And he makes the case through this letter. And then he gives as an example of this, Abraham. Now, Abraham, when you're given an example in the Bible and you need an Old Testament character, Abraham's like the go-to right? It's like, of course, Abraham. I mean, for crying out loud, he's the father of the faith. Like everybody would go, well, yeah, James, you bring up Abraham. Of course you bring up Abraham. He's like Superman in the Old Testament. You know, like he's the guy. But James uses Abraham as an example. He's someone who, who because of his actions, because of he, he chose to follow God, he was demonstrating his faith. But then James does this. It's up on the screen. It's in chapter 2, verse 25. He gives a second example. He says, Rahab, Rahab the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. James admires her faith so much that he says, you know what, if you want to know how to live like this, you want to know what it means to, to claim to know something and then to believe it and live it out, he says, Abraham and Rahab. Our actions demonstrate our faith. And they communicate to the world around us that we are building a reputation for God with our faith and action. In other words, James would say it's less about what we say and infinitely more about what we say and do. It's not about what we say. It's infinitely more about what we say and do. Now, uh, I'm a pastor, and so we have something that we call right now, we call it wedding season. All right, wedding season begins in the spring, and it goes all the way through the fall, right? And so you get invited to weddings, you get asked to officiate weddings, and, and so we're about to, coming on the tail end of wedding season. Right, But what's funny is that uh, we're already prepping for next season. All right, So I'm getting save the date cards all the time right now. For, 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 and so my kids will go, who's this? And I go, well, it's someone who's in my youth group. And so I'm officiating at their wedding. Uh, when is it? It's in May. Oh, okay. That's good. All right, so, so we're in wedding season. Wrap up. We're moving on to wedding season. Here's the curious thing about wedding season. Right? Here's the thing about those weddings. All right, is that we all gather together. We're excited. And most of the time, it's these young couples. Right? They have little hearts in their eyes. Right? And they, and they come down the aisle, and they're dressed in their beautiful garbs, and they do their thing, and, they, and, they're, and, they're, all, and they're all there doing their stuff. And, and we're all there dressed up as well. And, and we're usually playing music that we don't play any other time except at weddings. Right? And, and we're there to celebrate, and that's all good. 
good. That's a terrific thing. We should be doing that. We should be celebrating this young love and this commitment that they're making, that they're saying for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, and all those things. That, that's terrific. We need to do that, right? That's awesome. Here's what we don't do, and we probably should do more of it. There are couples that have 50 and 55 years of marriage. And they really know what it means to be for better, for worse. And they're not just saying it with hearts in their eyes. They are saying it and doing it. And so I think we should start a trend, all right? I, I want to start a trend where we, like, have big celebrations for 50th anniversaries. Like, like, like they should dress up in their gowns and do Wait, maybe there is. What, is. what is that called? When you celebrate 50 years, what is that? Is that golden? Is that the golden one? Okay. I really think we should make this a deal, right? That it should be that the church should, should celebrate those, like, like as, as big as, and maybe they could spend their retirements on celebrating that, right? And having a big party for all of us. And we, uh, Hear what I'm saying. Say and do. James says it's not about what we say, it's about how we live that out. Because how we live that out is going to spread rumors about God. And those rumors are going to change the lives of people around us because they're going to see it. They're going to see the way we live our lives. People are noticing. People are noticing how we live. And God's reputation is on display in the way we live our lives. So I got one final thought. This was kind of a side. I wasn't going to do it. I thought I didn't have time. But you're getting it anyway. It's a little bonus. Rahab's story is a story of our faith. It's a story about each one of us in this way. <clears throat> excuse me. I often say, you'll hear me say this, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you thought about God. Because God, uh, because Jesus, when Jesus is involved, our past doesn't matter and only our present and future do. That our present and future are what's most dynamic and most important to Jesus, that he forgives us of our past. Now, I've been saying that for decades, uh, about 20 years ago as a youth pastor at another church. And when I was a youth pastor there, we were doing this thing on Wednesday night where we would have church service for students. And we would have students come on these Wednesday night church services, and we would do kind of the thing that Steve does, the whole music thing, the whole loud stuff. We'd show videos, and then I would preach. We would do, it was a church service for kids. And, and what's funny is when we started doing that, I thought, all right, the only kids are going to come are the church kids. But it turns out these church kids actually started doing what we said. And they started saying and doing, and they started inviting their friends. And next thing you know, we had over 100 kids showing up for church on Wednesday night. And they were kids that don't go to church. Now, here's what happens when you get kids that don't go to church start coming to church is four-letter words are used in places that four-letter words shouldn't be used. And so there'd be kids who are running around the hallways and they're breaking things and doing things because they'd never been to church before. They didn't know what church was. But they were coming on a Wednesday night when they could have been doing all sorts of other things. They were coming to church to hear a bald, fat preacher. Like, what? that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you do that on Wednesday night? But they were doing that. Right? I was old then because I was hanging out with kids, right? All right, so... So here's the deal. So I'm do, I'm, we're doing this, and I'm excited. I'm like going, this is, this is incredible. This is like amazing stuff. And I had a parent come up to me of a, a toddler. And she meant, well, this is innocently. She didn't mean anything by it. Um, but she said, 
Pastor Rick, can I ask you a question? Can I talk to you for a minute? I'm like, yeah, yeah, what's up, what's up? She goes, I'm really uncomfortable with the kind of kids that are coming here. And I said, what kind are they? She says, well, they're, they're kind of a rough crowd. Like, yeah, they are. <laughs> and she says, and I've heard them cursing in the, in the, in the hallways. And going, yeah, that's our problem. She goes, I think we need to do something about it. I was so sad. It's like, how could you miss out? All these good things are happening, and we're concerned about the curse words that some kids who've never been to church before were using. I wanted to use one right then. <laughs> it was such a sad moment. Here's why I tell you that. There's this other verse, and this is the Rahab story. I'm going to wrap it all up right here, all right? When Matthew is sharing the Christmas story, in the chapter 1, he does the begats, the begats, the begats, and you kind of skip that. It's Abraham begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And you kind of like, it's just kind of, oh, it's just a bunch of, it's not important. It's just like a role, you know, like an attendance, right? But if you read that, there's these beautiful little segments in there. You're like going, oh, God, that's really good. One of them's up on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. Now, I love Salmon, so that stood out to me right there. Salmon was the father of Boaz. And then look what Matthew puts in parentheses. Whose mother was Rahab. She's related to Jesus. She's related to Jesus. Rahab, if she were here, she'd tell you it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't even matter about what you thought about God in the past because I heard this rumor about this God that will love me like no other and a God that is there for me and a God that will hold on to me no matter what. And so my past doesn't matter, but my present and future is secure. And so the way we live life, the way that we go about our day, has a dramatic impact on God's reputation. And the people that you see and the people that you work with and the people that you go to school with may be clinging to lesser gods and they're missing out on the God who loves them like no other. And we have a responsibility to live out our faith in public so that men and women and boys and girls can hear about a love like no other. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so, God, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you, God, for this time that we've had together. And, God, I thank you for the story of Rahab, that no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've thought about you in the past, that, God, you have your desires to forgive us and your desires to be in relationship with us. And, God, I pray that we'll be able to live that faith out at all at our homes, at our, at our workplaces, and our schools, God, that we would demonstrate a life of faith that would increase your reputation, God, and that the rumors of you would be good and true and be inspiring to people around us. And so we thank you, God, for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great day.